2: Welcome to the Peter King podcast, man, as if there wasn't enough to talk about after Sunday of week five, Monday night of week five, we could do a separate podcast on Monday night, you know, on the game, on the calls in it, on the aftermath with Devontae Adams. And we will get to some of that. I mean, we have a, a, a just a solid, solid block of stuff. It's going to be really interesting to discuss with my friend from NBC Sports, Miles Simmons. Um, and we got a good guest this week. Brandon Graham, the veteran defensive end of the Philadelphia Eagles. It's in his 13th year. We have a good discussion with him about the 5-0 and Eagles and about, of all things, trash talking. You'll enjoy that. So, we are going to discuss many things in this podcast, including... The crazy Monday night game with Josh McDaniel's decision, the Raiders coach, to go for two with four minutes to go, uh, not make it, and no points were ever scored again in the game. Um, We're going to discuss the New York Giants, who might not be great, but they are legit. We're going to talk about the defending Super Bowl championship teams, uh, or the defending Super Bowl teams, I should say. Cincinnati and the Rams, I mean, it won't be an upset if neither of these teams makes the playoffs. Uh, So we're going to discuss a little bit on both of those guys. Uh, Matt Rule fired, I kind of feel like in Carolina, it was only a matter of time, Um, you know, and I usually really like Brandon Staley's mindset, the Chargers coach, but I'm not so crazy about what he did on Sunday. Uh, Miles paid close attention to that game, we're going to get into that, and we're going to preview the two big games of week six, Dallas at Philadelphia and Buffalo at Kansas City. So much to discuss, but we're going to start with the tributaries of Tuatonga Valoa and how this league has changed in the last 16 days. Miles, hello, happy week six, and uh, how are you doing?
3: I'm doing great, Peter. It it is nice to have a good primetime game to discuss after uh, what we saw Monday night between the Raiders and the Chiefs, and I think we're starting in the right place because. Look, whatever has happened with Tua Tonga-Vailoa and the investigation and the subsequent revelations that have come out of it, it seems like there is a lot that is going into how the NFL is not just reacting to it, but also officiating these games. And when you're determining outcomes with officiating, I don't think that's necessarily what anybody really wants.
2: Yeah, I you know, let me, let me just sort of set the stage for this a little bit. I was watching the games on Sunday, and um, when I saw what happened with Teddy Bridgewater, for those who did not see it, Teddy Bridgewater was hit, hit hard on a tackle-slash-sack attempt by Sauce Gardner on the first Miami play of the game. Bridgewater went down. Uh, he stayed down for a moment and got up, and walked back as if to get in the huddle, and so and but it ended up being a safety, so he was had to leave the field, and they had to punt, blah blah blah. So at that time, they decided to check Teddy Bridgewater for uh, concussion symptoms in the locker room. So he walked into the locker room. He was cleared by the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant. Of any, this according to the Dolphins, he was cleared of any symptoms. And so he came out uh, after that. But the spotter upstairs, uh, in every NFL game, there is a spotter who is supposed to look down and say, hey, listen, you better check this guy out because it looks like he was a little wobbly or he looks this, he looks that. He has the power to basically say, take that guy out of the game or check him out, whatever. And that spotter claims to have seen uh, Teddy Bridgewater uh, unstable in some ways, and he ruled him out for the rest of the game. Saturday afternoon, that is what the NFL and the NFLPA decided. And they decided, in essence, together, that if any player shows what the league and the union uh, described as ataxia, which is basically gross motor instability, or any sign that you're wobbly punch, drunk, whatever you would call it, then you're gone for the game. Great decision by the league and the union. However, on Teddy Bridgewater, no one saw any of this gross motor instability except, apparently, the spotter upstairs. And we're going to get to why this is significant, but what bothers me is when Channel 7 in Miami on Monday afternoon released its footage of Teddy Bridgewater from the moment he got driven into the turf by sauce Gardner Uh, there. I think they had about a minute 15 of footage of Teddy Bridgewater and you never saw any gross motor instability. You didn't see anything of any player having to help him get up or keep him steady. So we never saw what apparently the spotter upstairs saw that presents a gigantic problem. The Miami Dolphins lost this football game because, in part, because Tua Valo and Teddy Bridgewater didn't play, and a third-string quarterback, Skylar Thompson, who had never played in an NFL game before, came in, and look, he's a third-string quarterback who's gotten zero reps probably with the ones all year, all through training camp, and so he has to come in, and he said, oh, yeah, let's form chemistry right now. In 10 minutes with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell. And obviously, the Miami offense really sputtered. They lose the game. And look, if Teddy Bridgewater demonstrated this, uh, he should be out of the game. I totally agree. And maybe he did. Maybe there was something that we didn't see that the spotter saw. But that is why, at least in my opinion, we need to have uh, some full transparency on events like this, and we've heard nothing from the league uh, in the uh, couple of days since this game happened. The league needs to be more transparent with this because I can tell you, the Miami Dolphins landed back in Miami Sunday night, and they still didn't know why Teddy Bridgewater couldn't play in that game. I can tell you that. Now, obviously, the two other things that contribute to me thinking that the NFL might have overcorrected or as one NFL executive told me, uh, this was overreaction Sunday, is you saw the, uh, the two uh, roughing the passer calls. One of them Sunday afternoon, Grady Jarrett on Tom Brady, which no one other than Jerome Boger thought was roughing the passer. And then obviously on Sunday night in the, uh, in the game against uh, between the Raiders and Kansas City, another roughing call on Chris Jones of Kansas City against Derek Carr that certainly did not look like roughing the passer but my whole thought is miles and I I'm sorry to have monopolized the time on this but my whole thought is you know I think that the NFL is is really trying to do the right thing here but I can't help but think that this mindset, that has been set down by the league to be cautious with the quarterbacks and to be careful with the quarterbacks has just gone too far.
4: Well,
3: it's interesting because if that spotter did spot some sort of ataxia, then I agree with you that he, Teddy Bridgewater should absolutely be out of the game. And the, when it comes to concussions, I, I I suppose that I don't have a problem with trying to overcorrect it in that way. And I almost I know it's the same issue, but it really should be two separate ones. And I, I hope that the NFL really starts to understand that it should be two separate ones, because when you're talking about a taxi, yes, that is certainly one thing, but when you're trying to legislate basically defense out of the game, that can't be something that we do. If we're still going to play football, unless we're going to have the quarterbacks wear flags. And if you get to the quarterback and you take off his flag, then that's gotta be what it is. I mean, I, I give Max Crosby some credit too, for early on in that game, when he went up to Patrick Mahomes, right? It was just basically a bear hug and it was in the grasp and Matt point. Max Crosby said, look, I'm just going to stand here and I'm going to hold him like this and I'm not going to let him go because I don't want any kind of roughing the passer penalty. And that's a good job, I suppose, by a defender, but at the same time, how is Patrick Mahomes then supposed to react to that? Is he not supposed to try and move so that he can get out of a sack? And if he does, then what's Max Crosby supposed to do? I don't think it's a good thing for defenders to have to somehow say, well, how do I have to bring this guy down? And what I thought was really great about Arthur Smith's reaction to that was he said, I just want to know how to coach our guys. You know, when Grady Jarrett is basically doing the teach tape, of twisting down and not slamming down. He's not trying to put his full body weight on Tom Brady. What exactly is he supposed to do to do his job that is gotten him paid for as many years as Grady Jarrett has been in the league. All right, this is something that he was doing what is on the teach tape and then he somehow still gets flagged and Chris Jones. I don't know what he did to an official because he's got the Matt Ryan issue from a couple of weeks ago where he said whatever in the world that was that he said that got him flagged for 15 yards and then he comes in on Derek Carr gets the ball and then still tries to brace himself. And then he's told that he's landed on his full body weight on a passer who really is no longer a passer because you got to have a football in some way or at least throw a football to me to be a passer. And when, you know, the defender is the guy that has the football, I don't really understand that. So the NFL, I think, has got to do something to make sure that roughing the passer calls are not getting out of control like this, because right now they are absolutely out of control. And I don't know what defenders are supposed to do to actually do their jobs.
2: Miles, I, I I agree with everything you said, and I just to illustrate that, you know, I watch a lot of Red Zone on Sunday, and twice in games, it might have been more than two, but there were two that I saw of pass rushers who uh, got in on quarterbacks, and I thought I was watching the Pro Bowl because they got <laughs> yeah. in on quarterbacks and they enveloped them in a hug and did not take them to the ground. And quickly, the referee, because... So for those who don't know the positioning of where officials stand during the game, there are two officials that stand behind the quarterback at the snap of the ball, on either side of the quarterback, separated by maybe 40 feet. And, you know, on one side is the referee, and the other side is the umpire, who theoretically has set the ball and then scurries back to watch, uh, you know, line play from there. And so it, it's almost like the pass rushers are saying, okay, Mr. Ref, I'm going to be gentle with the quarterback. Don't flag me. Yes. And I, I mean, exactly. I, again, that's probably an overreaction. But Miles, I just have to tell you what I was thinking after I watched that Grady Jarrett play. And, and and obviously in the on the heels of the uh, Teddy Bridgewater uh, you know banishment from the game when I'm just I'm sorry you shouldn't have been banned from that game I, unless there's something that we didn't see but I just kept thinking the NFL is really in danger of becoming flag football if this continues Tony Dungy basically said you can't play tackle football When you're making calls like this. Uh, And, and, and so I think this is a moment for the NFL. I'm not about to say that, you know, it's some full blown crisis. It's this, that, but what I am saying is, and again, I realize this is going to be taking it about five steps too much, but how do you think the Miami dolphins will feel on January 10th or whatever the day after the season ends if they finish 10 and seven and they finish just out of the playoffs if they're the eighth seed and uh instead and you know the top seven seeds make it how do you think they're gonna feel uh looking back on a season where man if we just got one more win well, what would have happened if, they, if Teddy Bridgewater played in that game against the Jets? I don't mm-hmm. know if they would have won, but they would have had a pretty good chance to win. And you put in a third-string quarterback, and absolutely unequivocally, uh, e- e- there's just no way to watch what we have watched and to be able to say— that the game has not been affected the last two weeks by this stuff. So again, I think you and I are both in agreement. Yeah. Got to be careful. You have to exercise all sorts of caution here, but you also can't go too far the other way. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, if there was a taxia get
3: him out and we agree on that. I know, but if there's not, then you're right. It's, you don't want to overcorrect too much, even if we are being on the side of caution with brain trauma. And so the fact that Teddy Bridgewater is now in the concussion protocol, and he's got to make sure he clears all aspects of that. I also kind of think that's good because it just will show that, Hey, he never really had a concussion. If he continues to progress through that protocol and pass through with flying colors. Okay. But At the same time, if we are going to say that pass rushers have to exercise X amount of caution, how are they really supposed to do that in the heat of what is a really, really emotional game, right? And what are they supposed to do when the fundamentals of what it is that you're doing and the physics of what it is that you're doing cannot be stopped just because you're in the pocket and you are trying to do your job, All right? Chris Jones gets paid a yeah. lot of money to get after quarterbacks, you know, from the interior. He is one of the best in the league at it. And he showed that he's one of the best in the league at it on, on Monday night. And then he got flagged really for doing his job. And I don't know if we need an eye in the sky or New York needs to get involved on some of these pa- uh, pa- roughing the passer calls. But to me, there's got to be some solution that the NFL implements immediately because you cannot have these games and the outcomes being affected like this. I mean, the, the officials literally took away a turnover from the Chiefs. That, to me, cannot happen yeah. on something like this. It can't.
2: Right. You know, in talking to um, the former NFL VP of officiating on Sunday night, um, uh, Dean Blandino, mm-hmm. um, and he said, "I because I told him what I was thinking, and he said, hey, I thought of that too, you know, or the officials being too overcautious because of uh, the Tua situation. And I just think this is one of those weeks, and I'll be interested to see Thursday or Friday, I'm going to call a couple of people at the league, and I'm going to say, what was done this week? Anything? What what happened yeah. this week? What did Walt Anderson in and the officiating department do? do or say this week. Um, So we'll see what happens. So, Miles, let's get to our guest. Um, I was happy to have a conversation with uh, Brandon Graham of the 5-0 Philadelphia Eagles. And I'll make this point about Brandon Graham. There are very few players I've covered in 38 years writing about the National Football League who are as happy to be in the NFL as Brandon Graham is. He loves his job, loves his life loves his team, and you'll hear it, I think, in my conversation with Brandon Graham.
0: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort.
4: Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a realtor can help answer. Because realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.
2: Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Mick Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour.
2: Back on the podcast with Brandon Graham, defensive end, Philadelphia Eagles. Now, Brandon, I'm going to start off with an Eagles quiz for you. Okay, you ready? Ooh, okay. Here's the Eagles quiz. In the last 50 years of Philadelphia Eagles football, I want you to tell me what player has played the most seasons of any player in Eagles history in the last 50 years.
5: Uh, If I got to say, it's between Doc and Reggie White.
2: It's Brandon Graham. Ooh. Brandon Graham, 13 years. Okay. Only Chuck Bednarik has played more years with the Philadelphia Eagles than Brandon Graham.
5: Man, only Chuck.
2: Only Chuck.
5: Oh man, it's a great feeling. Then I didn't, I didn't even uh, realize that, uh, that I, that I got up there.
2: Yeah, well, you're up there now. I don't know if you remember this, but the last time we had a conversation, you pulled out your phone, and you showed me a play that you had on your phone and you said that day, this is the greatest play of my life. I want you to tell me and tell our audience, what's the greatest play of your life?
5: My greatest play is when I strip sack Tom Brady in the Super Bowl 52 Super Bowl.
2: Okay, so let's just set the stage for that. Eagles 38, Patriots 33, two minutes and 18 seconds left patriots with the ball second and two and it's tom brady we all were sitting there watching the game and we think it's just going to be a minute or so and it's going to be 40 to 38 and the eagles are going to need a nick Foles miracle to uh to win this game so i want you to tell me how did you make that play and how did you end up over a guard on that play over Shaq Mason, who was their right guard.
5: Well, uh, that's a credit to uh coach sorts at the time. He put out Turbo, and Turbo was the uh was the package where we put in the extra D-lineman, uh DN. That was Chris Long, and then I bumped down inside over the guard. Uh we knew that Fletch been getting double teamed uh all game. So I knew I had a one-on-one uh at that play. i would just I was just trying I didn't even really know the down the distance, I just knew it was passing situation. <laughs> and so Uh, I knew I had the one-on-one. I uh, took the B gap. I told Chris Long I'm going for the B, and I got outside. I kind of bumped into the tackle uh, on on his side and kind of kept me up, got through, reached for the ball, closed my eyes, and next thing you know when I opened them, the ball was on the ground. (laughs) Hey, man, uh, Derek Barnett picked it up, and, boy, I just ran off to the sideline because I knew it was something
2: big that just happened. (laughs) <laughs> Have you ever, to this day, spoken to Tom Brady about it?
5: No, you know what? I actually uh, had some, some, some moments where after the game, where it's just, you know, it's just all, it's just been all love. But um, i never really had that conversation with him just yet. Uh, but I know he went back the next year and won it all, so I know he wasn't really worried about it. But um, <laughs> I, I do, if I do see him up at a Michigan function or if I see him in the game again, I, I want to bring it up and ask him, could he sign my ball? <laughs>
2: Do you think he'd sign it? I think he would.
5: I think he should be a good sport about it because you won two right after you lost that one. So, I, I mean, you should you should feel better.
2: <laughs> the amazing thing is, when you think about it, this is your 13th year in the NFL. The year that you walked in to Philadelphia Eagles training camp was Tom Brady's 10th year in football. Wow. So just just imagine... How much and you're you're a Michigan man.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: you understand the importance of Tom Brady both to Michigan and in the NFL. I do.
5: I do. And I at that point I knew how how big he was uh then. And I mean he's gotten even bigger now. So man, uh to make that play, it was something special to be a part of the history books uh in his in his career, and on top of that, it um it made my career go up even more, uh finally getting one. So I mean I'm man I'm just I'm just in awe of still being here in Philly for 13 years one team uh and I thank uh Mr Lurie and you know the the team uh you know what I'm saying howie and those guys just uh believing in me especially because it didn't start off as good as I wanted it to but uh fought through and man that play definitely just put the icing on the cake um, you know to, to help me you know what I'm saying be here for 13 years.
2: So, Brandon, it was only five-plus years ago that you guys won the Super Bowl. You're the toast of Philadelphia. There's two million people at your parade. And and since then, no more Doug Peterson, no more Carson Wentz, no more Nick Foles. I mean, the whole team basically is gone except for, like, you, uh, Jason Kelsey, Fletcher Cox. I'm probably missing a couple of guys. But most of the team is gone, and yet you— Have lasted. These other guys have lasted. What's the key to last thirteen years in one place in the NFL today?
5: Um, I think sometimes it's a credit. Well, I I know it's a credit of how you're treating people, how 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 great of a teammate you are. Um, I'm I'm always trying to help the younger guys, uh, and just knowing what to do. And I obviously I got to play at a high level still because you know you're not just gonna sit on. Uh, the team and not be able to, you know, produce for the team. So I think that's just uh, me making sure I I stay with my regimen each and every day, um, helping people along the way. Uh, The situation has to be a good situation for me because, um, you know, we did come in with a different scheme than what what I've played this scheme before under Chip Kelly, but, you know, to go from uh, Swartz 4-3 now to back to a 3-4 slash 4-3. Uh, It only prepared me for this moment. So I think being here 13 years, being able to adapt to different coaches that I've had and and the the work ethic that you got to have bringing it each and every day. um, I mean, I know that that's part of the reason why I'm still here.
2: One of the things I've always thought about you is that there is nobody in the NFL who has more fun playing football than you do. (laughs) And that has to be part of your success. Mm-hmm. Every single game when I watch, you are pounding people on the shoulder, you're excited, you're high-fiving, you're you're hugging, you know, you're a trash talker, but not a trash talker who's a jackass.
5: Oh, yeah. You know,
2: you're just, you're having fun. What is it about you that, why do you have so much fun playing football?
5: Because I know uh, when I'm on my A game, I can dominate anybody in the league. You know what I'm saying? That's where that's just how I feel, and I feel like I can back it up. If I if I didn't feel I could back it up, I probably wouldn't talk as much as I do. But uh, I think it's just uh, me being able to back it up, having a little fun. I do love this game, just like today. I'm already on one. I told people I'm on one today because I'm just feeling it, uh, just feeling good. Uh, just want to go out there and get better today, and uh, getting off the rock. Uh, it's always fun because I know they get lame uh, problems uh, when I'm when I'm playing them, and you know you just it it's just about having fun, like you said, because time is flying. Um, I, I love this game, and I'm trying to uh, maximize even more of what um, you know I didn't do early on in my career. Uh, now that I'm you know year thirteen, to let them know I still
2: got it. So I, I wanted to ask you a question about trash talking. So you trash talk and it used to be in the NFL trash talkers would really get guys on the opposite side really ticked off but it seems almost that other guys kind of laugh at you sometimes with some of the things you say like i saw you once said to lael collins when he was with the cowboys hey 71 too many cupcakes you know, because he was looking like he weighed a little bit too much, but what is the way, tell me about you and trash talking. Why do you do it? And where did you learn it from?
5: Well, you know, I, I try to talk because I know some people can't handle it. And if I see some people can't, I keep going. If I feel like some people can, and they still out there playing at a high level too. Uh, I kind of stop chirping a little bit unless we still, unless we winning. But, um, you know, I think, uh, for me, I got it from – I know I got it from my dad because me and my dad uh, always laugh because he was like, man, when I play because he played basketball and he went to college for basketball and he was like, man, if that ain't me. And so I'm like, you know, I just try to keep it up uh, because I really do have fun. I really do have fun when I'm out there. I'm not trying to hit nobody with no low blows to where they want to fight me after the game, but I do – uh, have some fun because you're right. Like I know Layelle Collins don't like when I'm talking stuff. So I, I go a little extra mile and he was on the cowboy. So it just made it even more, uh, of a trash talk uh, for me to get under his skin. Cause yeah, I know that, um, you know, he, he don't like it. And when I kick, when I smell blood in the water, I'm definitely going for the kill. <laughs> okay.
2: So tell me other than Layelle Collins, what's been your favorite, maybe most effective trash talk? that you've ever done in the NFL?
5: Ooh, that's a good one. I don't think nobody, uh, you know what I did like, uh, you know, when uh, Popeye's chicken sandwiches first came out, uh, that's, I was uh, walking up on a couple guys and we was playing Washington and I told him, hey man, I know y'all see how hot and how everybody want one of them Popeye's chicken sandwiches. Oh, it's a couple out there for me today. I know y'all boys had some, so I'm definitely going to get some and I was translating that to sacks. And, um, um, man, I had a great game against Washington that day. It was fun, and I was mic'd up, so it was um, it was worth it uh, on that one. So that's one of my memorable, memorable ones. Um, um, when uh, I said that to uh, – who was that? That was Morgan Moses, and then on the opposite side, it was uh, the one that played at the Raiders for a minute a long time in Tampa. Dang, what is his name? I can't think of his name. Uh, He's out the league now, but he played for almost 13 years too. Um, oh, you know, who this I'm talking was a about few too.
2: years ago. Yeah.
5: Yeah. But it was fun yeah. though. Um, yeah, it was, uh, that was one of my most memorable ones. Uh, did you just... ever
2: happen for instance to, did you ever, uh, look at how John Randall, the defensive tackle used to trash talk people? He oh, you was... know what? We,
5: he just was on the screen. We just was, uh, looking at a film of him, uh, of him because of, you know, him doing all the, I remember him, always trying to get a headbutt from somebody, uh, you know, one up before the games. Uh, but no, I didn't hear him trash talk, but we oh. were just looking at that. We were just looking at how he used to, you know, be before the games and uh, how he had the trainers hitting him on his head and getting them in the mood uh, to get ready for the game. Uh, so I got it. I'm going to go look at it and uh, see He used
2: saying. to, Hey, listen, you got to Google John Randall trash talk. You'll learn some things okay. because what he used to do is he used to study the opposing team's media guide to look for things to learn about him. Like he used to kill Brett Favre. And, you know, they'd play the Vikings. They'd play the Packers twice a year. Yep. And he would kill him. And finally, one day, Favre just said to him, hey, Randall, shut the F up. You know, and that's, but Randall knew that he had him then. Yeah. Because you know, he was paying attention to him. That must yep. be what you like when
1: you oh, see yeah. Yeah,
5: that's exactly it. As soon as they say something back, I got him. Now they ain't thinking about the play. Now they trying to come get me. And Fletcher always be like, man, be quiet, man. You talking to my guard. And like, like you got to go against him. He going to try to get me. So I'm like, man, well, stop being scared. It's all right. You, you Fletcher Cox.
2: <laughs> hey, here's the last thing I'll ask you. Tell me one thing about Jalen Hurts that we don't know. One reason maybe why you have a lot of faith in this guy to run your team
5: you know what the, y'all see him y'all see the the finished product on sundays but i see him every day and uh this off season when i was rehabbing and he was here with me and just seeing the dedication he had every day to um to, to call guys and be like hey come on y'all let's go to up to a field so we can run some routes. we do this and it was just his consistency each and every day uh especially him being young and just seeing that work ethic already i already knew it was going to be something special uh and not saying it was going to be perfect but i seen that he had the uh the makeup already of uh being a great quarterback trying to trying to get better on what he know uh he's weak at and man i just think that's always important because obviously we all got talent but it's what you do with it and i think uh seeing him do exactly what he's doing now, but I know it started way back during the off season. man, I, I, that's going to carry him well. And I'm, I'm excited for him. And I always just a whole off season, I was talking to him every time I got a chance to see him and told him, you know, just keep going. Cause I see you. you, you know what I'm saying? And so I think that, uh, that helped me when I was coming up and I had Trent Cole and those guys, when they see me work and seeing that, how it's finally coming together, I still talk to some of them guys and they, they you know, just proud of me, just continuously, working working and working and um you know you're only getting better from that so that's one thing i can say seeing them every day that work ethic
2: brandon graham the philadelphia eagles good luck chasing that second ring thanks a lot for joining me
5: hey thank you man i appreciate you
2: okay take care
0: all right have you ever brought your magic to Walt disney world like hey we came to play
2: So, my thanks to Brandon Graham for his time. I think you get what I get, what I've gotten over the years, getting to know him a bit. Uh, He's an effervescent, kind of a good dude. But uh, our thanks to Brandon for spending a few minutes. So, in part two of our podcast, we are going to discuss everything else about the NFL that has nothing to do with Tua. Tua. (laughs) And the tributaries of Tua, shall we say. But I want to start by just reviewing one thing from the Monday night game. And that is Josh McDaniel's decision in the Monday night game uh, to basically to go for two, down one point with a little over four minutes to go. And uh, they failed, obviously. We probably wouldn't be discussing it other than to say, man, what a great hero Josh McDaniels is, had the guts to go for it, that's how they won this game. Usually, you know what, Miles, there's an old cliche, history is written by the winners. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in this case, uh, you're going to look at Josh McDaniels' decision, and, and, and I must say that one of the things he said after the game was that, We loved the play that we had on. It just simply didn't work. And they had teams now spend a good amount of time practicing. They're both, you know, uh, short yardage plays from the two yard line, which is Mm -hmm. where these plays come from. But in this particular case, it didn't work. What'd you think of the decision? What'd you think of the play call?
3: Yeah, I, I didn't mind the decision, actually, especially given what the circumstances were in the game. There were just over four minutes left. Uh, Las Vegas had all three timeouts. And so, if you're at that point, yeah, you want to try to see if you can get ahead because you kind of figure that the Chiefs can go down the field and maybe score anyway. And if you can prevent them from doing that with your three timeouts, then you're gonna have a chance to get the ball back if you don't make it, right? So I I didn't really have a problem with the the decision there. And I didn't have a problem with the play call either based on the way that Josh Jacobs was playing. Josh Jacobs, by the way, he has been outstanding in the last two weeks, back to back weeks. He's a monster. Yeah, he's (laughs) gone career high in rushing. So I liked what they did. It didn't work but that's a place where sometimes you say process over results and you don't mind it. The process there to me was right, especially because look, I think 45 times out of 50, if not 99 times out of a hundred Devonte Adams catches that ball along the right sideline and he taps his two toes. And then boom, the Raiders are in position for Daniel Carlson, who's a very accurate field goal kicker to send that thing through the uprights. And then they win and we're having a totally different discussion today. So I, I really didn't mind anything right. that the Raiders did there.
2: Here's the thing. When you've got a running back who's red hot and you've got a defense that has not been able to stop him with any consistency and you choose that for your two point play running at a place that you feel your scouting reports and watching tape says that we have ultimate confidence that the guy who's run 21 times for 154 yards is going to be able to make two yards. I absolutely don't mind uh, yeah. the call. And sometimes the other team makes plays. Now, mm-hmm. if we talk about the Raiders and what happened exactly as you discussed, that if, for instance, I, I I love Daniel Carlson. If, for instance, the pass to Devontae Adams where, you know, maybe he was eight blades of grass from – being uh, catching the ball in bounds okay and if he catches the ball in bounds all right in essence daniel carlson would have tried then a 57 yard field goal and you know i have a lot of confidence that he was going to make the 57 yard field goal and that's silly to think in this day and age it's certainly not a gimme but there are four or five kickers in football who I think anything inside of 60, I, I would put my money on them. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is one of those cases where and I woke up to a bunch of Raider fans. I got two emails overnight, got a fire in McDaniels horrible call. Uh, it wasn't a horrible call. Uh, it just it just didn't uh, work. And yeah. I don't I don't I don't mind the call. So I think we're both pretty much in agreement there.
3: Yeah, we are. We are. And look, if how much better should you feel if you're a Raiders fan than you're a Bron- if you're a Broncos fan, man? I mean, my gosh, the Broncos are yeah. reeling, and they've got a better record than the Raiders right now. I don't think that'll be the case at the end of the
2: season. I don't either. Hey, let's focus on the New York Giants. And I, I have this feeling about the Giants. I talked to Xavier McKinney, who made the play, the, you know, put his hands up. And he Mm -hmm. got Aaron Rodgers uh, to throw the ball into his game. And exactly. Yeah. A lot of (laughs) deflections. But one of the other things is, you know, I talked to somebody with the Giants after the game, before they got back on the plane from London to come back here. High ranking member of the Giants. And I asked him, uh, what really stood out to you about this game? And he goes, Coaching, he said. First of all, the fact that Wink Martindale, the defensive coordinator, likes blitzing safeties. If you're a safety and you want to be Troy Polamalu, you like playing for Wink Martindale because he <laughs> yeah. likes to send his safeties. And here's the amazing factoid: talking to Xavier McKinney, I asked him about the difference between this year and last year for him personally. And he goes, last year I was not asked one time to blitz. And that seems insane. It just, (laughs) it seems crazy that a guy who made his bones at Alabama at being a sideline to sideline, he played down in the box, he played rangy safety, and he blitzed, you know, for Nick Saban at Alabama. Why wouldn't you take full advantage of what he can do? But anyway, he blitzed. He forced Aaron Rodgers to throw the ball early, and he batted the ball down. All traits of Wink Martindale. That's one element of coaching. The Mm -hmm. other element of coaching that I really like is the fact that Mike Kafka, the offensive coordinator, comes over from the Chiefs Mm -hmm. and is a disciple of Andy Reid, obviously. And you see all the imaginative stuff that the Giants have done on offense. They've Mm -hmm. run Saquon Barkley out of the Wildcats seven times in the last two games. Now, some of that was by necessity because both quarterbacks were hurt for a while against Chicago a week and a half ago. But in this particular game, he did it because, you know, as somebody from the Giants said, we decided this is kind of a cool weapon to have, to just direct snap it to Saquon Barkley and then just see what happens. Let him pick the hole that he likes. And so I just applaud the fact that they're coaching well, playing well. And as I said at the top, the Giants might not be a great team, but I can tell you four and one is no fluke. And I think they are legit and they're going to contend to make the playoffs. Uh, I think the stat I saw after the game is that their next five foes uh, did not make the playoffs last year. So that, that can be deceiving, too. Baltimore, I think, could be really, really good, and they've got Baltimore this week. But give me your uh, impressions of the Giants.
3: Well, you know what the Giants kind of remind me of right now are the 2017 Rams, and that's because I was very close to that team. Um, that, were, that was the Rams, and you know, they got a coach that could help them all basically ascend to what their potential was. Right, and and I don't know that Daniel Jones is gonna be as good as Jared Goff was, but he's playing really well right now. They're utilizing Daniel Jones' talents to the best of his ability. Right, Todd Gurley came off a really ugly looking season in 2016, and look at what Saquon Barkley's doing now. Right, it's it's it. There are just a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities. And and Peter, reading your column, one of the things that stood out to me about McKinney was he said we're having so much fun right now, and that's what football should be. Football should be fun, you know? And when you're winning, obviously it's a lot more fun than when you're not. But that's kind of those things that like they they remind me of each other. And that's why I agree with you. I think the Giants are going to continue to contend. I don't know that they're as good as the Eagles or the Cowboys, but there are seven teams now that yeah. make it. Right. There's seven teams now that make it per conference. Why why shouldn't the Giants yeah. be one of them? Why not? And this is a great, <laughs> great start. The- to the, to the day ball era. I think
2: the, the one thing that the one difference between the giants and the early Rams teams is that the early Rams teams had the ability to be explosive on offense. This team sure, really yeah. doesn't, but all the other parts of that, the coaching aspect, the fact that you might be playing with a slightly flawed quarterback, but there are some things he can do well and a great running game and a growing burgeoning defense. All those things, uh, I think, are interesting parallels. So, I, we did talk a, a, about, uh, about this a little bit last week. We talked about the troubles of the Rams and, and all that. And, and I don't want to overdo this, but I found myself thinking on Sunday, watching both the Rams and the Bengals. I said, you know, there's a decent chance that neither of these teams are going to make the playoffs. And I think the Bengals probably have a better chance than the Rams. The one thing about the Rams right now is that it just looks like, as Sean McVay said after the game, they need some help. Matthew Stafford needs some help. I mean, that's to put it mildly. I think, you know, and, and knowing the Rams a little bit, knowing people inside there, there's something that really, I think, is going to be very hard to fix during the season, and that is their offensive line. Yep. That's got to be a bottom three offensive line in the league right now. And yep. Matthew Stafford, half the snaps, he's got to do everything himself. So that really bothers me from them. As far as the Bengals go, their lack of consistent explosiveness is really a factor. Going against two deep secondaries that everybody is playing now, um, you know, where you have to win in the middle of the field, in the short and intermediate areas, man, last year, the Bengals just weren't like that last year. And unfortunately that's what they are this year.
3: It totally is. And, you know, we talked about Mike Kafka earlier, right. And the explosiveness that he's brought, the creativity that he's brought from that chief's offense. And you look at that play that the Bengals had on fourth and goal and it's the one where you usually get that little backhand toss to the tight end coming around and the Chiefs have done that so well, so well, so well. Everybody wants to be the Chiefs, but not everybody can be the Chiefs, right? So that to me is where you've got to really find things that work for you. And I can understand, you know, it's a copycat league, right? Everybody tries to take what they can from one team and implement it themselves. But sometimes you don't know exactly what the coaching points are. And I think on a situation like that, that's where the difference is between, you know, having the first people who teach it and then being the people to teach it off of the tape. I I think that there really is a difference there, and the Bengals can be in trouble because they just can't be as explosive, as you said, Peter, with teams playing those two deep safeties. And when it comes to the Rams, I mean... Their interior offensive line is in shambles. You know, Rob Havenstein talked about it on Monday to reporters out there that they had a closed-door players-only meeting among the offensive line to just try to get themselves right. That's something great that Rob Havenstein's doing. He's a captain now. He's been with that team since before they moved to Los Angeles. He's one of two St. Louis Rams left, the other one being Aaron Donald. So if he's going to lead that group, then he's got to do things like that. But it's a talent problem because they have guys out there yeah. basically that were on the practice squad. And now they're starting at center. It's not easy to do. It's not easy to overcome. An offensive line has always got to be greater than the sum of its parts. But when the parts are basically one plus one, plus one plus three plus five, instead of three plus five plus three plus four plus five, you know what I'm saying? It, it's going to make a huge, huge <laughs> yeah. difference. And, you know, I'm not great at math, but to me, that's, that's where the problem is coming from. And Matthew Stafford's been sacked the league high 21 times. That number's only going to go up. And I don't know how he's going to make it through the season if he keeps getting hit like this.
2: Matt Rule gets fired in, Cal- in Carolina. As I said, it was only a matter of time. And I found myself thinking on Monday when the news came down, found myself thinking of the links to David Tepper. That David Tepper, the owner of the Panthers, went to to hire Matt Rule mm-hmm. um, in January of 2020. Rule was on a family vacation with his wife and I think three children, and uh, uh, but David Tepper was determined to uh, get to Matt Rule and hopefully hire him. So he wanted to be there when Matt Rule. Got back from vacation, so what did he do? He was camped out in Rule's driveway. So when Rule came back from vacation, he and uh, Tepper uh, sat in the uh, in a room in uh, Rule's house in Waco, Texas, and basically got this deal done. Had a very long interview, and you know, and that's who they ended up hiring. The reason they did that at the time is that they want wanted to keep him from interviewing with the New York Giants. And he was scheduled to interview the next day with the Giants. But the only reason I bring this up is that David Tepper was so desperate. Everybody said, well, why in the world do you sign a guy to a seven-year, $62 million contract? Why would you do that? Because that's what he was going to make at Baylor. So why would Matt Rule take a pay cut to go to the NFL? He wouldn't. So... Tepper had to give him that money. Well, now, you know, obviously, uh, Rule, I think, is going to go back and coach. But Tepper, as of this morning, owes Matt Rule about $40 million. And I think it is just a great illustration of the fact that, listen, coaching and having the right coach in place is one thing. And coaching matters. Mm -hmm. You know what else matters? Having a quarterback. And their quarterback position has been a disaster since uh, Matt Rule got there. And he just couldn't overcome it. So Matt Rule is still a very good football coach. And, you know, I don't think he got enough support from Tepper in tough times over the last year, especially. And he never had a quarterback. Yeah, Teddy
3: Bridgewater, Sam Darnold, and then Baker Mayfield were the starting quarterbacks that Matt Rule went into the season with. And especially Baker Mayfield, when you get that guy in July and not April, not May, not even June, and you're basically setting him up with six weeks to learn Ben McAdoo's offense, and again, Ben McAdoo is your offensive coordinator, that's also not necessarily the most uh, well set up to succeed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let, let's, let's call it that. So yeah. I don't know that Matt rule was ever going to have that much success at the NFL level. I mean, sometimes this makes me think of one of my favorite sayings, which is sometimes things are outside the box because that's where they're supposed to be. And we'll see probably Matt rule go back to college, have a lot of success if that's what he wants to do. But I'm also reminded of that clip that was floating around on social media from a few weeks ago from Ed Orgeron, the former LSU coach, when he said, Hey, they're gonna they, they told me, Hey, we're gonna fire you coach, but we owe you 17 million dollars and we're gonna give you all of it. And he goes, Yeah, all right. Well, what time you want me to leave and what door do you want me out of, brother? You're gonna give me forty million dollars to not coach the Carolina Panthers? What time you want me to leave and what door do you want me out of?
2: Um I think you and I both are kind of fascinated by Brandon Staley. I am interested and I have supported many of his iffy decisions on fourth down, including fourth and one from his own 18 last year uh, in the last game of the season against the Las Vegas Raiders. Obviously it failed. Um, But I had a problem with what he did on Sunday and let's set the stage. Uh, the Chargers are ahead of Cleveland, in Cleveland, 30-28. to 28. There's a minute 14 to go in the fourth quarter. He's got fourth and, as it turns out, 1.7 yards to go. So basically fourth and two. It's called fourth and one on the NFL play-by-play, but yeah. it was a very long one. Uh, yeah. Next Gen Stats told me that it was 1.7. So fourth and almost two at the Chargers 46. So you had a couple of analytics models say, go for it. Next Gen Stats said very narrowly, you should punt the ball. This is where, at times, I believe that you need to ingest what the analytics tell you and then say, you know, I would rather force Jacoby Brissett with no timeouts left to start a drive from his 15-yard line and in a minute five, let's say... Uh, or however much time, but let's say 65 seconds to uh, have to go 55 or 60 yards to get in position for a makeable field goal. And But they went for it. I'm really bothered by the fact that Justin Herbert went from the shotgun, which totally takes the runaway. And you've got Austin Eckler, who's had the best rushing game of his career in the backfield, that you've got to respect maybe he might run. And they threw a ball, a slant pattern, that a rookie jumped the route and it was incomplete. So now uh, the Browns have a much better chance to win the game with a field goal. Turns out that their guy missed a field goal. So Brandon Staley did not get a tremendous amount of crap after the game, but he still got quite a bit of it. I just think you have to punt in that situation. Your thoughts.
3: Well, I think you don't necessarily have to punt, but if you're not going to punt, then you need a much better play call than what the Chargers put out there. I I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I think that he should have punted. If it were me, I'm punting because I'm punting to a backup quarterback who is going to be backed up in his own territory, just as you were saying, Peter, and he doesn't have any timeouts to work with. And Jacoby Brissett has been in this kind of situation before throughout the course of the season. And really the only time it's worked was in week one when Cade York hit a 57, 58 yard field goal to give the Browns the win over the Carolina Panthers. So that's the other thing that's in the back of my mind. We know that if we give the Browns a situation where they don't have to get that many yards, it's still, it's a makeable field goal for their kicker. And he's kicking at home. He should be comfortable in the environment. So it's all about risk assessment, right? It's different if you're punting it to Patrick Mahomes or trying to keep it away from Patrick Mahomes, right? Or Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or any number of quarterbacks that we could talk about. But with all due respect, it's Jacoby Brissett, right? We're not talking about the same level of QB and we're not talking about the same level of the receiving core. So if you go for it like that, and you don't make it, then you are giving them the opportunity to say, hey, complete one pass, make it a makeable field goal for your kicker. That's what they did. So I agree with you. I don't know why you go from shotgun. I don't know why you don't go from under center to at least freeze the linebackers. Browns are some of the worst linebackers in the league since Anthony Walker's been out. They can't stop a nosebleed. So I don't know why you're not running the ball in yeah. that situation anyway. I mean, you have to do something yeah. to give yourself a chance. And I get, you know, fourth and one, fourth and two, whatever we want to call it, it's makeable and you can win the game right there, but you can also really kind of lose it. And Brandon Staley's explanation after the game, you know, they wanted to win the game. Yes, but we trusted our defense, this and that. Well, your defense didn't get it done, frankly, because again, it's a 54-yard yeah. field goal. That's makeable for Cade York, and he should have made it, especially because he was drafted in the fourth round. So they are lucky that they escaped Cleveland with a win. They are very, very, very lucky. lucky. Yeah.
2: Very lucky. Miles, we only got one minute to go, but I want to say three sentences apiece. On Buffalo at Kansas City and Dallas, Philadelphia. All right. I, I'm gonna I'm just gonna say two things about Buffalo at Kansas City. I just have this feeling, especially because Gabe Davis has really emerged as not a good but a great number two receiver. I just think that Buffalo's firepower in this game might be too much for Kansas City. Thoughts.
3: I think you might be right um but they've still got to play the game and Kansas City when motivated can be as good as anybody that's 3 no
2: question um Dallas at Philly interests me Dallas has taken advantage of some pretty rickety offensive lines in the first yes. month of the season yes now they go up against what might be the best offensive line in football and so I just look at this as let's say Cooper Rush has to play I don't know who's going to play at quarterback if Cooper Rush has to play this is a game where he's going to need to make some plays okay he has been a complimentary piece so far and on the other side man I, I I think covering the three weapons that Jalen Hurts has plus a really emerging running back in Miles Sanders. Just I kind of like Philadelphia in this game. I think their weapons are a little bit too much, and I like their ability to protect uh, Jalen Hurts.
3: Yeah, I like Philadelphia, too. I'm going to break the three-sentence rule.
2: Uh, I, I
3: feel like <laughs> Philadelphia right now, is in a better spot. I mean, whether or not Dak Prescott plays, I I like the way Philadelphia is playing. I like the way they're winning games. And I love the way Jalen Hurts is leading that team. So it's one of those games where Cooper Rush can't necessarily just be the game manager. They're going to need him to make a couple more plays if he's the one that's out there. And if Dak Prescott's playing, then he's still coming off an injury. So how is he going to be able to shake that rust off? So I, I like Philadelphia because of those factors, but both of these teams have shown an ability to really get after the passer. And so that could be the great equalizer.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so my thanks to miles Simmons for the breakdown of week five and the look ahead to week six, my thanks to Brandon Graham for coming on and enlightening us about the art of the trash talk, but Thanks so much for experiencing another episode of the Peter King podcast. We'll be back next week. And one of these weeks, it's going to be boring in the national football league. I'm not sure exactly when that is, but I will be in Kansas city for the Buffalo, Kansas city game. So hopefully I'll have a couple of insights for you next week. Thanks so much for, um, uh, your, uh, you know, your listenership, your viewership, and you can either hear us on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or obviously you can watch us on the NBC Sports YouTube page. Thanks a lot. We will see you next week.
4: Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.